It is good to be with you. We are actually, uh, we're starting a brand new series today. I'm very excited. It's going to be our Christmas series, and it's called Family Tree. Um, before we get into this, the new series, though, I did want to just say thank you. Um, our church has been able to sponsor six different kids with our Christmas care program. Um, we work with other organizations within our community to make sure any child who may not be able to have a Christmas presents on Christmas morning would. And so many of you stepped up. Uh, we, we filled the list very quickly. Some of you have given uh, above and beyond. And so just want to say thank you. It's so such a blessing to be able to be a blessing. And um, thank you for that. So um, this new series... Family tree. Uh, it's actually all about the genealogy of Jesus. I don't know if you can see the graph from this far, but what makes up the tree is all the different names in Jesus' genealogy. And maybe you're like, hold up a second, what is a genealogy? Uh, if you begin reading the book of Matthew or the book of Luke, which chronicle the story of Jesus in your Bibles, um, they begin with genealogies, long lists of names. Have you ever seen those lists at the, okay, so a lot of times we can kind of be overwhelmed by that list, like who would want to talk about that part of the Bible, right? But before you write me off, I got to say there is a big interest in genealogies lately. Uh, Ten years ago, I wouldn't be able to say this, but now I got to say people are interested in their heritage like at never before. In fact, I've got some, some stats for you. Um, well, actually, before I go to the stats, how many of you have done a DNA test, like through Ancestry.com or something like that. Anybody in here? Okay, so um, in since 2013, there were over, th or, or in 2013, there were 330,000 DNA test consumers. 330,000 uh, in 2013. Five years later, that number was 12 million. 12 million. In 2018, 1.5 million tests were sold just between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. 1.5 million. For those keeping score, it took 2,000 gallons of saliva to process all those tests, which obviously I'm spitting a lot because there's a, a big, you know, area here of people clearing out. So the results of people doing these tests is that they found out all sorts of interesting things about their family. Um, some people have found out that they're related to past presidents. Um, other people found out that they're not German after all, that they're actually Scottish, Revelation there. Um, some found out that their uh, line runs through Africa or Asia, and maybe they're not as white as they thought. Or this guy, who was a white supremacist, found out that he's 14% African, which just tickles me to death. Uh, others have found out that the, they grew up from an adopted sister that was right down the street. Can you believe that? Right down the street, an adopted sister they didn't know they had. And then some people found out interesting stories about their lineage. Like um, one, of my, uh, one guy found out that their great-grandfather died eating a banana. If ever you wanted an excuse not to eat bananas, there you go. Their great-grandfather died eating a banana. Other things that you find out when you do these tests, and I haven't done it yet, but I think my mom's about to get on into it, so I'll find out all sorts of stuff. Um, but, but some people um, found out things about their last names that they didn't know. You know, like, how did we get our last names? My last name is Guerrero, which actually means warrior. So that tells me that I come from a line of warriors. Which I, I haven't even said the joke, okay? I know. I'm wimpy. I'm wimpy. It's something got weeded out of the genes that should have stayed with me, I think. But anyway, so <laughs> um, other people, like if your last name's Smith, you probably already know this. Your ancestors were probably blacksmiths. Um, if your last name is Appleby, uh, you're, you probably, your family probably once lived by an apple orchard. I didn't know that. 
Um, people with the last name Leach, like Robin Leach, they think that their ancestors were physicians that used leeches, you know, as part of the medical profession, and the name just stuck. Uh, someone with the last name Hall, uh, their family... <laughs> I'm full of it today. I'm, good luck. All right. Uh, they're... The family uh, probably worked in a nobleman's uh, hall, if your last name's Hall. And this one's really interesting. Uh, if you, from an Asian background, um, last names were not adopted until the 1800s. So typically, there's just a few last names that everybody shares. They're like, don't even differentiate them. In fact, half the population of the world has just a few last names because they were all adopted recently, and they all just gave themselves the last name of a clan. So you can find all sorts of stuff out about names and where you're from. And some people get really into it. It gets really, really interesting. And it reminds me of this story of, of a guy who uh, started to work at a brand new office, big corporate office. And when he got there, he met the boss's boss. And they asked him, hey, what's your name? And, and he says, my name's John. And the boss, you know, he went into this long thing like, listen, we don't do first names here. You know, millennials are ruining the work environment. we got to keep it authoritative. There needs to be a structure. And so I want to know your last name. You can call me Mr. Robertson. I call him Jones. I call him Baker. You know, we're, we're not on the first name basis here. That's how we work in this environment. So what's your name, son? And he says, well, my last name's Darling. I'm going to call you John. I'm going to call you John. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but, but anyways, so when we start looking at these family lineages, I know when we get to it in our Bible, it can be a little overwhelming. Um, it's easy to skim through. It's probably the most skimmed through section of the Bible. It's like kind of reading a phone book. Like who wants to read a phone book? Maybe it's got great characters, but the plot, there's nothing there. So sometimes when we get to Matthew 1, we just skip over it. What I want to do at the beginning of our series is tell you why this family tree matters and hopefully make you a little bit interested in it since we're going to spend three weeks talking about it. So why is the genealogy of Jesus important? I want you to think about like a, an online profile, something that you use to get to know somebody. In the ancient world, your genealogy was kind of your online profile. It's the way that you got to know people. I mean, you used to think in the ancient world that where you came from told a lot about who you are. You used to say, what's important, what you need to know about me is that I'm the son of, the sister of, the brother of, I'm a part of something bigger. It was a way of introducing yourself. And when the authors of the Gospels use these genealogies at the beginning, they're trying to give you a profile picture. They want you to know certain things about Jesus. They want you to get to know him quickly. So these were helpful to get to know people, and they were also super practical. Here's a few things you may not realize about these genealogies. First and foremost, back then, family trees helped the ancient world in a variety of legal ways. You know, there wasn't a ton of writing. There wasn't a ton of documentation. So you had to know your genealogy if you were going to get your inheritance, if you're going to have land allotments in order to establish royal succession and all that sort of stuff. In fact, in Luke 2.3, it says, everyone went to their own town to register. Um, so everybody, when they had a census, had to know where their family was from. Where does our family call home? The genealogies helped you know that. The family trees helped you know that. The other thing that they did for Jesus is that Jesus' family tree proved his lineage. And this ended up being a really big deal for Jesus. Jesus made big claims that he came to be the savior of the world. And the Jews, who had been waiting for a savior, said, we know that the savior is going to come from a particular 
family, which is why people argued with Jesus about his family tree. It says in John 7, 42, does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And they're asking this question because they want to establish a family tree before they listen to Jesus. Hey, did you even come from Bethlehem? And of course, we're going to tell the story soon. Yes. Are you even from David's line? Yes. But they needed to know. Matthew 1.1, it says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And there's some things that we learn immediately about Jesus at the beginning of the genealogy. Some big profile information. Number one, his name is Jesus, which means he will certainly save. Matthew 1.21 said um, uh, about Mary, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The genealogy also gives him a title, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, it's a description. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who will come to save the world. Luke 6.4.18 says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He is the savior who's come to save the world. It also says that he's the son of David. And that's some profile information that lets us know that he has come as a part of a kingdom and that he's coming to establish an eternal kingdom. He also is described as the son of Abraham. And that would tell people back then that Jesus thinks he is fulfilling a worldwide blessing. Abraham's task was to bless the world. And so Jesus is saying, I'm here to be a blessing. I'm here for the kingdom. I'm here to save sinners. This is who I am. This is the big profile information. Now, it's easy to skim right through this, but when we take a little bit of time to look at it, we get to know Jesus even more as part of what the genealogy does. Now, that was a lot of information, so if I lost you, come back with me for a second. As much as we learn about Jesus from this genealogy, you also need to learn that we learn something about us as well, something really important about you and I. We learn that God's family includes all kinds of people. God's family includes all kinds of people. You know, you've been able to see the outline of this list, all these names on here. We are going to learn as we look at this text that these people are very, very different. That they have different backgrounds, that they did different things with their lives. In fact, as we break this list down, we're going to encounter people who were the heroes of history. And people who were lost in the footnotes. People who were great successes. And people who were embarrassing failures. People who are faithful and people who rejected God and their place in his story. All of that is in this list, which reminds us that God's family includes all kinds of people. So uh, this series leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at three different groups of people within the lineage of Jesus. We're going to talk about the forgotten, the failures, and the faithful. And today we begin with the forgotten. Let me just say this, Jesus' family tree reminds us that God remembers the forgotten. Anybody ever felt uh, unappreciated or forgotten in your family? I'm the youngest. In fact, I'm not just the youngest, but I'm the youngest of the youngest. Like of all the cousins, aunts and uncles, when everybody would get together in our family, I was the youngest out of everybody, out of all like 20 or 30 of us. And youngest get to experience certain things in life that other people in the family don't. 
Um, if ever somebody forgets to get an extra chair, an extra table, or an extra bed, it's the youngest job to figure out how to make it work, to just fit in and make it work. They'll be fine. They'll be good. Uh, you know you're a youngest if at every family holiday you end up sitting in the sunroom. The sunroom and a fold-out table. Here's the thing about the sunroom. None of our major holidays take place when it's sunny. It's not really the sunroom. It's more like the walk-in freezer. All of my family memories of Thanksgiving and Christmas, I'm in the walk-in freezer. Why? Because I'm the youngest, and the youngest just got to go figure it out. Or like, again, when, when you're trying to figure out where's everybody going to stay. I, I remember this one time we had all of our family together. All of my mom's side is from Vermont her side of the family, so we did lots of holidays in Vermont, we'd have all the cousins together, and what would always happen is everybody would get a bed or a couch, and then they'd look at me and be like, oh, I guess there's not enough spaces. Um, just try to find a little nook or a little cranny, and, and, and you'll make it work. I didn't even know what a cranny was until I slept in one. Like, what, what is this? I remember in particular this one time, this is horrifying for me, um, this one time, the only space available was the one little cushion on the couch, so my cousin was sleeping on the couch, and they said, this cushion, this is yours. Crawl up in a little ball, and you'll be good to go. And I'm like, okay, I guess I can make that work. But then something happened. I ended up having one of the most horrifying nights of my life. Um, I, need to, I need to disclose something about myself. I've got a little bit of foot phobia, okay? I don't like feet near me. Anybody with me on this? It's just an uncomfortable position for me to be in. So I'm on the end of this couch, and my cousin's cold, stinky feet are like inches away from me as I'm curled up in my little ball. And when you're trying to avoid something when you go to bed, here's what happens. At some point in the night, you lose control. Okay? So like you're determined, I'm not going to get near that foot. But some point in the night, you lose control of your body. And then all of a sudden, you wake up, and that foot is right in your face, your drool is on that foot, and you've been totally violent. Horrifying, horrifying experiences. Even Megan got to experience what it's like to be youngest with me just five years ago. Five years ago, we did another Vermont trip. All of my family got together in one giant house. You already know where this is going. Somehow, who was not given a bed? Me. So Megan and I had to sleep the whole week on one twin bed. Now, we were newlyweds, so we made it work, but I'm just saying, it's like, oh my goodness, it, it does not feel good to be forgotten. And we're going to look at some people today on Jesus' family tree that most people have forgotten. These are the people who didn't make it on the family Christmas card or were stuck behind giant Uncle Jim just trying to wave from behind him. These are the people that everybody seemed to always forget, and yet what we're going to learn as we look at their story is that they've got a purpose in the story. And that even while maybe they didn't make the headlines, Jesus and God wanted to use them for great things. So here's where we're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. It said, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon. We get off, you know, we get off to the races here and we're going full speed. These are the heroes of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived. These are the characters that you came to see. But then not too long after, we get to everybody else. Let me keep reading. Hezron was the father of Ram. Man's name was Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab was the father of Nation. We don't even know if these people were saints or scoundrels. We don't know anything about them because nobody ever wrote about them. And there's even more. 
Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abayud. Abayud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. These guys are so unknown that I had to practice the pronunciation before this message. Like, who knows how to even read these names? We've never even heard of these. And what's amazing is that group of people, from Shealtiel to Achim, that represents 200 years of family history. 200 years between those guys, and we have no idea who they are. Every single person on that list that I just read, the only information we have about them is their name. So why are they included in this genealogy? Why does Matthew take the time to write down their name? Why weren't they lost in history? And the answer is simple. Because they were a part of the story that God was telling. They were significant. They didn't get to make the headlines, but they are known and valued by their Heavenly Father. And they were a big part of God's plan to bring the Messiah to earth. So here's the big idea for our message. If you hear nothing else, just hear me out on this. God uses people that others overlook or ignore. Whichever word you like better. God uses people that others overlook. And here's what I know about you and I. Some of us are going through kind of a forgotten season right now. Going through a season of life where maybe we don't feel seen or valued. Um, Maybe you're getting put by the stinky feet at work or at home. Um, Maybe you're not being recognized for the sacrifices that you're making, for all that you're doing. Maybe people aren't seeing what you're doing. Maybe you actually have been forgotten by your family. Maybe for whatever reason, mom or dad's walking out and not looking back. Maybe your spouse has stopped seeing you the way that they used to, stopped being there mentally or physically. And being forgotten is hard, and it can be really destructive because we can begin to believe that We're forgettable, that we're expendable, that we're not important. And that is when we often start to drift from our mission and our purpose, start to drift internally and externally. I read a story about a a guy named Jordan Adlard, and he was a young man who grew up near the estate of a super wealthy aristocrat named Charles Rogers. And this is in Cornwall, England. Some of you may have seen the story on the news Um, This estate is said to be where King Arthur was mortally wounded and died. So like tons of history, tons of value, this incredible place. Well, Jordan grew up near this this land, and when he was 12 years old, his mom said, hey, I know I haven't told you anything about your dad. I can't say for sure, but I think that guy who lives there is him. And he's like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, we had a relationship, blah, blah, blah. So I was like 12 or 13 years old. He's like, I'm going to try to reach out to him and just see if my mom's you know, telling the truth. So he sends a letter, and it says, you know, I'd love to get to know you. Here's my story, blah, blah, blah. The guy sends a letter back, Charles, sends a letter back, and he says, absolutely not. If you, if you email me again, I'm going to send you to my lawyers. Well, he waits five years. He turns 18, and he's like, I, I got to know. So he emails him again. He's like, you can send me to your lawyers or whatever. I actually think you should take a DNA test because I think you're my dad. I don't think my mom is making this up. So they're going back and forth. And he's like, fine, I'm going to send you to my lawyers. Well, things kind of get stuck in the legal process. And he kind of moves on. And he gets to 24, 25 years old. And he's like, I, I got to know. And this time I'm going to do whatever it takes. So he sends uh, uh, mail to him with a prepaid DNA test. And he says, 
Charles, just take the test. Just do this for me. It's all I want from you. And he finally got a response from Charles. Came in the mail. Said, I'm sorry to inform you that Charles has died. And he's like, what? So after he died, they say, you know what? Let's do this DNA test. Let's see. They do the test, and sure enough, it comes out that he was his son. Well, it turns out that Charles had no other living heirs. They didn't know who to give the $60 million fortune to. And so finally, when they were able to prove that Jordan was his son, the entire estate, $60 million, went to him. And this is him. This is just last month when it all finally went through. But I want you to hear what Jordan said about this. He said, people say I'm lucky, but the truth is I would trade anything to be able to go back and for Charles to know that I was his son. In fact, I can't help but think that maybe he would have taken a different path if we had gotten to be together. And he's referring to the fact that when his dad died, he actually committed suicide. And so he said, I just wish that I could have got to know him. I just wish we could have been together. He went on to say that money is great, but what I really needed was a dad. All these years of feeling unseen and unknown, not able to have that relationship that he so longed for. Jordan sought it and sought it and sought it. And I got to tell you, Scripture tells us that this is in the heart of every human. Every single person needs to know that they're valued and they're loved. And part of what God does for us is he lets us know that he's created us with purpose. Psalms 139, 17 through 18 says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. I love this. He's, the, the psalmist is praying. And as he's praying, he's just like, I can't believe that you care about me. Like, I'm so insignificant. I'm just a speck in the universe. And yet you care about me. You think about me more than I can even count. You're there with me even in the morning, uh, at the start of a new day, even after I make mistakes. You're there. You're there. You're there. It's like, that is what's changed me. That's what's drawing me into this faith. I have a God who's really there. I went through a dark stage in middle school where, where I really felt desperate for attention. Um, I didn't think that people cared about me or noticed me. And that's when I really started to act out and really started to kind of lose the thread in my life. And it didn't take long for me to fill my life with regrets and mistakes. And I remember um, one night in particular feeling very desperate and crying out to God and asking him for help, saying, God, if you're there, I, I need something to change. And the way that he responded to me that night, the way that he came and was there and was real, it, it changed my life. It, it made this verse come alive to me. I felt his presence. He helped me see my value and my purpose. And it was, that little prayer, a turning point in my life and in my faith. It changed things once I really knew that God cared about me. You know, when we feel unnoticed, when we feel unseen, when we assume that position as the forgotten person, we often start acting out. We've got to get some kind of attention. We often start lashing out because we're so bitter of where things have gone. We, we often start tapping out and say, I don't even care anymore. I don't need anyone. I'm just going to live my life isolated. I don't need you. I don't need anything. We do all these things to try to cope with the fact that we feel forgotten. Why? Why do we work so hard to overcome this feeling? Because every person needs to be valued by someone that they value. And there is no bypassing this need. There's no way to get around it. There's no trick you can pull on your mind and on your heart to get over it. Rather, we are hardwired to need 
that value. Um, J.R. Tolkien says it way better than I ever could. He says, the praise of the praiseworthy is beyond all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is beyond all rewards. Every human needs to be seen as worthy by someone that they think is worthy. This is why the cross can be so revolutionary in our lives. When you and I lock eyes with our Savior on the cross, we see someone of infinite value and power moving heaven and earth in order to bless and save us. We see the most valuable person who's ever lived saying we are valuable. And when we gaze into his eyes, when we catch his vision for our lives, we're liberated from the constant need to find approval in other places. The constant need to be approved by our peers. The constant need to be approved by that one person or that one family member that never gave us the love that we deserved. We're finally freed from it because we get that need fulfilled. There's something that happens at the cross that fulfills what every human being needs. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament that I love. Um, it's about a woman named Hagar. And Hagar was a servant for Abraham. Um, and God had promised Abraham that he would do a miracle and give his wife, Sarah, who was elderly, an offspring. They had tried to have kids their entire life. They prayed and prayed and prayed. God said, okay, Abraham, it's coming. But unfortunately, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a season where they stopped believing that God would fulfill his promise, and they decided, we got to do something else. And so they concocted this plan. You've got a servant, Hagar. Um, why don't you sleep with her, and then she can produce an offspring. That way we've got something to keep the family going. So Hagar gets pulled in one day, and Sarah and Abraham both say, you got to do it. And so she produces an offspring. And it's horrible, because it was one of those things, like almost as soon as the kid comes out, everybody's filled with regret. I mean, huge regret. Everybody's thinking, like, wait a minute, we should not have done this. And they wanted to just forget about Hagar and forget about her son. In fact, Sarah started hating her and resenting her. Why did she have a kid? And, and Sarah couldn't. And eventually she came to Abraham and she said, this, this lady's got to go. She's got to go. And Abraham said, fine, fine, do whatever you need to do. Just get rid of her. Whatever it takes to get you off of my back, go do it. And so this is horrible, but Sarah drives Hagar into the wilderness and leaves her to die. All for following orders. This is what Hagar gets in her life. And when she goes out there, she assumes that this will be the place where everything's over. In fact, she sits down with her child and she just gets ready for death. She just knows that it's coming. But amazingly, that's the very moment where God enters into her story. You know, it's interesting because for the sake of the narrative, Abraham is the important one. Abraham is the one that's going to end up on Jesus' family tree. He's the one that has the focus in the story. He's the only one that matters. And yet, as soon as Hagar gets pushed to the side, the focus of the story, the camera, pans to her and focuses in on her. And instead of being left alone, she gets to, for the very first time, have an experience with God. And when God shows up, he says, you're not going to die. And he leads her to a spring of water. He leads her to food. He gives her what she needs. And then God tells her that she's been created with a purpose and that she has a destiny. After she experiences God, she realizes that everything she used to think about God was wrong. And so she thinks to herself, 
I got to totally rethink this. She even gives a new name to God. Here's what it says in Genesis 16. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. You know, you may be here today and you may not feel like the type of person that God wants in his story. Maybe you've made some mistakes. Maybe you've just never really cared about the whole faith thing. But I want you to know that wherever you come from, you are exactly who, want, who God wants to focus on. You are the one that he wants to bring the story to life in. You are the one he wants to use for his great purposes. You are not forgotten. You are not unseen. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, yeah, I know that. I'm very thankful that I know that. I've, I've, I've had this experience. I, I sense what you're talking about. I know that God loves me. And if that's you, I just want to challenge you with a thought from the story on Hagar. Hagar did not know who God was, even though she lived amongst the people of God, the family of God. In fact, it's worse. Not only did she not really know who God was, but she assumed that God did not love her or care about her because of the way that Abraham and Sarah treated her. She took their actions and put them onto God. Surely, if this is who leads these people, God does not care. She should have known that God loved her by the way his people treated her. But she didn't. And this is the challenge for us. We were loved when we were unlovable. We we were cared for when we couldn't care for ourselves. We were comforted when we were inconsolable. That's part of our faith story. And if all of that is true, how then can we go out and turn our back on the people that the world is forgetting? How can we not focus on the people that everybody else is drawing attention away from? You and I have a responsibility to be there for those who are struggling, to see those who others are ignoring, to care about those who are overlooked. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew 25, 36. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous ones who God is talking to will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked or give you clothing? I don't remember seeing that. When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them, I tell you the truth. When you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. When you and I care about those who are overlooked and ignored, we are showing our care for Jesus. Because Jesus does not just see the forgotten people, but he was determined to become the forgotten person, to become the outcast, to become the person of pain and sorrow, to go to the cross and bear all of that so that you and I would never have to face it alone. And now we are God's people representing Jesus to the world, and we are called by his name to care for those that the world overlooks and ignores. It would be a shame if during this holiday season we get so wrapped up in the things that are wrapped up that we would forget our true calling and our true mission to bring life to those who don't have it. You see, God loves forgotten people. He loves you and I. And there is nothing that he withholds in order to express that love.
We're going to close today with a, a time of prayer. And I want to pray for two groups of people. The first group is, are those of us who need to know that God sees us. And the second group of people I want to pray for today are those of us who have experienced God's love and are being challenged to live it out. And after each of these two prayers, I'm just going to offer a brief moment of silence because I really do believe that not only does God see us today, but he wants to speak to us. And what ends up happening in our lives is when we give God a little bit of space, he often comes and fills it up. That's when we first get to experience this love. That's when we first get to experience this transformation. So if you'll join with me today, we're going to do two prayers. Join me for the first. Jesus, some of us feel forgotten today. Some of us have been forgotten. And in the midst of our pain and frustration, we're reaching out to you because we know today that we need a rescuer. We need somebody to come in here. We need somebody to fill our hearts, to give us the attention that we're so desperate for. And so, Lord, we just take a moment and ask, will you speak to us right now? Lord, some of us have been blessed by your presence. We found composure when we weren't able to muster it. Confidence to do great things. Peace in our hearts. Thank you. And God, as we enter this Christmas season, let us not overlook the people around us. If anyone should be able to see and care for those who the world has forgotten, it is us. Forgive us for not seeing. And we give you a moment right now to speak to us. And if you are calling us to go out and to care for somebody in our lives, Lord, we will go. Lord, please, we just ask you, will you speak to us? God, you are real, and you are with us. And we thank you for Christmas, which means God is with us. And we thank you that your voice is alive and that you speak to us. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would give us the courage and the hope to move outwards this Christmas season and to love those who the world's forgetting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.